0: Now, this is a very special episode for me because this man has brought much love and much joy to my heart via my stomach now people will be listening to this going what on earth is he talking about kendall yanamoto if i pronounce that correctly
1: that's correct
0: is a vancouver-based friend of mine who introduced me to the best katsu restaurant in the world in downtown vancouver and that katsu restaurant is in my mind every second day. So much so, Kendall, that you have ruined Japanese food for me around the world because I cannot replicate that pork katsu anywhere else. <laughs> Nothing cuts it anymore. I think we went there what three times in a week or something the last time I was in yeah. Vancouver. That I think it's yeah,
1: awesome. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll renew deep deep fry anything and add cheese to uh I add cheese to katsu, and it's just like crack.
0: This, this what what was the name of that restaurant? We got to give them a shout out if they're listening, which they're probably not. But what was the name of it again? uh,
1: uh what is the name of it? Saku, S A K U, Saku,
0: Saku. Um, oh.
1: Saku. And if you're if you're in Vancouver, it's on Alberni Street. Um, you just uh just short of Stanley Park.
0: Yeah, it's it was it was it was a, a fair feral, yeah. feral walk from from where I was standing. Um, yeah, good few yeah. cares, but. Man, it was worth it. Pork katsu, uh, cheese katsu, lovely rice, uh, pickles, shredded cabbage.
1: Yeah, even oh, the cabbage is good.
0: Man, it was so good. And then afterwards, we will go back downtown to uh, a coffee shop and have some uh, tea and cake afterwards. That's the yeah, kind of gentleman. Tea. That's the kind of gentleman that we are, Kendall. We are. We are we are gone beyond our, our thug years. We we are gentlemen. Early dinner, conversation and discourse about philosophy and humanity over tea and yeah. cake. Very civilized.
1: Very very civilized. Yeah, we aim to please in Vancouver. So, you know that's that's the thing.
0: It was so funny. I think the first night we went out. What nights without? We and it was Todd was with us and a few others. And I I think you said uh, we go for a beer and everybody was kind of looking at one another. And I said, tea and cake again? And everyone, oh yes. And I was like, we've reached that lot part in our life where tea and cake is actually more appealing than going out for a beer. And I thought, This is sad but also awesome. <laughs> just you
1: know, just own it, go with it. That's that's the
0: philosophy. Yeah, it was so good. Own, um, it, own it completely. They were some of the some of the best times of that trip to Vancouver, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that that was was
1: fantastic i i i even forgot what you were there for actually
0: yeah i was going to say i think i was there there for a conference conference, yeah world sleep was on and then i was doing some work with fatigue science as as their advisory board but um yeah i think i ended up bailing on the Ah, conference and just eating japanese food (laughs) it was so good
1: yeah sure yeah it sure seems like you did we did spend a lot of time together
0: <laughs> it, was, it was good fun. We had some good Just, conversations. Yeah,
1: katsu and cake.
0: <laughs> katsu and cake. Yeah. So absolutely. so so Kendall, was, you your name your name is Kendall Yanamoto. People would say this dude sounds yep. sounds Canadian, but uh, or American if they want to insult you or get you riled up. They would say uh-huh. this guy sounds like he's Canadian, but is that a Japanese name? They would say. So what what is the what is your background, Kendall? How did you come yeah. to be in Vancouver?
1: Yeah. So I'm Japanese. My. Both grandparents came over, you know, just to make a better life from Japan. So my my mom and dad were both born in Canada. Okay. So yeah, but it's yeah Japanese surname, but but I mean I, I'm in Scottsdale right now. I'm not in Vancouver right now. I'm in Phoenix in Arizona. So, yeah, in Arizona. Yeah. It, it was eighty four today. We played golf. So.
0: Do you know? Do you want to hear an interesting fact? I believe <clears throat> I don't know if it's in Phoenix or Scotts Scott. Is there an observatory in Scottsdale?
1: Uh, there's probably is because um, they've got some sort of low light or no light ordinance in the evenings, like you can't, like, there's no street lights here, so it's a perfect place oh. for an observatory.
0: So, I, yeah. I I believe it's in Scottsdale, Arizona. There is a telescope there that is actually the twin sister telescope of us, of um, the tele- telescope at the Perth Observatory here in Western Australia. Oh, no kidding, we'll yeah, have yeah, to yeah, Google it now. That'll I'm, be, uh, uh, I'm nearly sure it's got some. I'll have to take the tour. I'm, I, yeah, because when, when I did the tour here in Perth, they said, oh, there is, um, there is a, a sister telescope here. I got I to gotta double check that. They might have to fact check me after this, but it's definitely in Arizona. I'm not sure whether it's, <clears throat> it's there or Flagstaff.
1: There's a ton of them, actually. Actually, there's two the, the uh, observatory and Flagstaff. Yeah. and uh in Gilbert which is just south of here but there is one in the observatory in Scottsdale yeah I just googled it while we were talking um we'll there's to, three of them uh... on Yelp believe it or not so I think a lot of people come here to view here's a an expanded picture of it
0: yeah 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 pretty cool Wait, so there yeah it's quite... in
1: Maricopa county
0: oh, there you yep. go. I, I believe there is a sister telescope <clears throat> to um that. I'll have to, I'll have to, if I find it, I'll put in the link afterwards anyway, because I'm, I'm it's definitely an Arizona one. So there's, there's a link, but you are in Arizona. So you, yeah, your, your Arizona. family, your family moved to, to Vancouver <coughs> on the, on the West coast of Canada. Um, so what, why did they pick Vancouver, Kendall, out of interest?
1: You know, my, my mom's dad was really in, interested in fishing. My dad's mm-hmm. dad came over just for work in general. I think he had a, There's a position in a company. I think it was a fishing thing. So they both wound up fishing. Um, And then, you know, obviously we had the internment, right? So at that point they took the, they took the property and uh, like, unlike here, they didn't give it back. So they, they took the property, kept it. Everybody went, you know, where they were supposed to go. Uh, My mom and dad got, my mom's family got lucky. They, They went to a, like a pretty nice place just in interior BC. My dad, my dad's family went to Alberta and then they circled back like way after, but they were gone for, I think five years, six years. My my mom didn't go to school until she was years old. Wow! So that's a pretty one of those things, right? And nobody talks about it really.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I didn't. I never knew that till I moved to Australia. So there was. I think we were driving down south of Perth and we saw an area that used to be an internment camp. And I was kind of start you know looking into it and digging into it. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. I never realized this happened. But then I also found out that basically, if you looked any which way. Asian, you went in. Didn't matter if you were Japanese, if you looked Chinese, Thai, any way, sort of that was similar to a Japanese person, you were just put in yeah, automatically. Probably. It was, it was like what? This is ridiculous. Yeah. So it's quite. It's, it's a,
1: it's an embarrassing part. Uh, like no like embarrassing, but also sort of, uh, what would you say? It's, it's, it's a not a great part of Canadian history. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's just, and I, I'm not. I'm not political by any means and you know my family just they nobody really talked about it too much my dad does now because he's 86 because he remembers stuff and my mom my mom passed away when, in 2016 but my mom said you know they just played she, like it was different because you know the parents can't deal with it my grandpa would get drunk and just you know whatever mm. like they worked but it was very you know would be i guess like emasculating for the guys because yeah, you just can't yeah. really do anything you've got no way to do whatever you want and and you know maybe that's why i i'm like overly entrepreneurial like i just like i'm gonna do whatever i can or like wherever i can and just sort of do that because um you know it's just
0: yeah you're you're a man kendall i like because uh, as i said to my wife the, the good thing about kendall is also the bad thing about kendall kendall has 50 million <laughs> yeah. ideas at once it's awesome to talk yeah. to her but you got you, you you walk away from talking with kendall and I said, and you're lying in bed, and your head is racing. So it's uh, it can be quite, quite, quite frustrating. So hence why we have an yeah. I have an early morning call with you. Um, so so Kendall, you you grew up in Vancouver, and um, did you play any sports mm-hmm. as a as a kid and a teenager? What what were you sort of into?
1: Yeah, well uh, the the first thing I played was basketball. Well, actually, the first thing I played was golf because my mom, my mom and my aunt would take me to the range, and I was I think I was two. I'd be swinging, you know, swing the clubs. Um, you know, I'd wake up from a nap and at that time it was all you know you parked the car and the range was here it was just a grass field you bought your balls and my mom said they were standing there and balls started shooting at them from the cars I'd found a club and some balls somehow and I was only three I think wow so golf was the first thing and it's it's still the thing but but basketball is big um you know that was my thing but I have a weird sort of athletic history because when I was 30 I was having trouble with my back and I went to see a chiropractor named Don Nixdorf who was the head of the BC Chiropractic Association and he said yeah, you got to go and see this this massage therapist he's unreal so that's when I met Mike Murray like he he was a sprint coach for our uh our four by 100 team that won gold at the Olympics in Atlanta and at the world championships so Robert Esme was on that team with Glenn Roy uh, Donovan Bailey and um, Bruni Cern yeah and um I trained with those 90, guys for six 96. years, six years. It was uh yeah I think it was ninety six yeah ninety six and ninety seven no ninety five and ninety six or ninety six and ninety seven Atlanta, Atlanta was ninety
0: six yeah was, was it? it
1: was yeah. it I think it was we we could look it up like I've seen Roberts medals and all that but I trained with those guys for six years from age thirty to thirty six so it's it's nowhere near as taxing as the stuff you do but like I spent six years with the Olympic sprinters and that kind of that was what changed my sort of sporting career.
0: And so was, that, was the intention there to train with us to be a sprinter for to get into the Olympics or were you just doing it to improve your own sprinting?
1: Yeah, I didn't go out with any other objective other than like I, I went to see Mike twice for therapy yeah. and he said, hey, we had some great conversations. He said, you know, you're a golf guy, I'm a track guy, but I think I can help you. I remember him saying that sentence and I said, okay, so why don't you come to the gym? So I went to the gym for, I think I went to the gym for two or three weeks. Cause you know, we started the training in the fall and then he said, well, why don't you come up to the track? And mm-hmm. I had never been to the track before really ever, you know, like you run relays and stuff as your kid. I, I hung out for all three hours, like in where it's just freezing cold. Cause we're in uh, Vancouver, <laughs> you know, early October. Yeah. And then I decided, Hey, I'll give this a shot. So I went out and after two weeks, one kid said, Hey, you know, like most of the athletes don't last too long here. And I, I did it for six years, like eight months a year six days a week you know I trained with those guys Um, oh you know while I was trying to coach and do that stuff so it was for me it was full-on serious like you know it was it was it was it was was the best thing that I ever did for myself like as far as like learning and, and really getting fully embedded in a in a like athletic culture with elite athletes and then learning like from just a fantastic coach like from day one like never had a single bad habit you know and just watched him basically like throw that sort of genius out every day it was just amazing
0: what, what was so you different know? about him Kendall that struck you that wanted you to, that you wanted to keep going back
1: you know he was the only guy I really met that really honestly knew what he was doing as a coach and that's pretty you know I don't mean to be that strong but that's how I felt when I met yeah. him like I'd seen different I'd seen different Different golf coaches i'd see different coaches in all kind of other aspects and he was the only guy it didn't matter if you're black yellow white purple green like he was going to make you run faster yeah yeah you know and it was it was amazing he was actually a, one of the fastest jamaican schoolboys when he grew up and the guy who's usain bolt's coach glenn mills he he they were taught by, by the same guy like sprint technique um, and the, he was just a barrister. He, he just called him Mesam, like that's all I remember. But he was a barrister in Jamaica, and mm-hmm. Mike learned his system and like taught taught it to us. So it was really cool.
0: What was his name again? Mike.
1: No, Mike Murray. Yeah, Mike Murray. Him up. You you may or may not find him. He does. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't like a lot of press. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was gonna uh, say, he he's he's like. He yeah, he's, a, mas-
1: he's yeah. a massage therapist yeah, yeah he's yeah. a massage therapist in Vancouver BC and um he's I mean he's like my second dad like he's just uh, just a great guy I learned so much from him and uh you know like he um he's pretty candid with me because I spent so much time with him and I, and I wrote my book and he looked over my book and he told me there was me and one other guy a guy named Tim Croker he said you guys really understood like what I was coaching like yeah, yeah it's super clear to me, like you guys got it. And we were probably, ironically, we were probably the two least, least talented guys. We had to pay attention. Everybody else was naturally fast. Cause he, yeah. he said to me when I, in the third, third year sprinting and I was finally getting in the drills and I was actually kind of getting quick, quick. He said, you know, it's too bad you started so late. Like, cause you got like no fucking chance of being fast. Cause you're too old. I was 34 at the time and I just, I just, i just ate shit like the whole time because but i I, but i i loved it because i was learning all the time yeah yeah i think i think
0: that's the thing isn't it if you find someone like that who it's not so much about the outcome it's about the process and and then what you can glean from it from other parts of your life it can be it's it can be life-changing
1: Like it for me it was life-changing ian without that i when i people ask me about it all the time like my my friends that know like my buddies that are golfers because i was a golfer first and like what are you doing and I said, Man, if I have to explain it, I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure I can really articulate it very well. But like, I went because I was just addicted to learning that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and we got to the point where it was running really fast. You know, benching three fifteen, blah blah blah. You know, was just like maybe un- under ten percent body fat, and like hanging with these guys on drills. And and I never ran a race. Like I never, I never competed. I just competed with those guys in practice. That was enough. You know. Yeah.
0: So what did you so, end up running then? Like was, uh, for hundred meters? What was your what was your uh, time?
1: Well, that's what I said. I never I never ran a timed race. You oh, know, really? like the only I was just thinking about this the other day. Like the um, we we went to a we had a training camp in Long Beach. We just we drove all the way down. I mean, we trained grassroots, like no money whatsoever. And um, we were at this we were at this uh, track, and we were we would do one fifties. Like we did a lot of one fifties. Um, so we did a lot of drills, a lot of one fifties. And at Long Beach, we ran. We ran this one, 150, and I was on the inside and I mean, Robert Esme is here. He was a little bit injured. We had Anthony Wilson. He was like, you've been to the Olympics twice as a 200 and 400 guy. And then Kyle Robinson was like a all American sprinter at Syracuse and they're all training together. So these guys are just studs and I'm just, you know, I'm hanging and I'm just doing what the coaches tell me. So we run the first 150, and you know, I get, I get smoked cause obviously I know I'm going to get smoked. Right. So, the second time they put me on the outside and they go, Kendall, you call it. And I can't see anybody, right? I can't see anybody. So they go, and I'm like, I better go faster. So I'm turning over really fast. I'm like 20 meters from the end. I haven't seen anybody yet. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then, like, I'm still, I'm just tempoing it out, right? And I'm like, I'm in such good shape. And like, Anthony Wilson comes by on one side, like, and Tony's fast. He ran like 14.9, I think, or 14.8 for that 150. And then Kyle was kind of came up and we kind of crossed the line together. And then and Mike came across, he's running, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, cause we were running way too fast. And they're like, it's his fault. Like it's, they're blaming me. Cause I came out fast. Cause I came out too slow before. And he's yeah, like, yeah. I didn't even think I could run that fast. You know, but that's <laughs> in my head. That's the one I, that's what I play over and over when I'm with the sprinters. Because every once in a while I could get them on a rep, whether they yeah. were a little bit off or I was just on. And that was enough satisfaction for you. I mean, I just like, and Mike asked me, why did you want, not want to race? And I'm like, I enjoy just the training and everything, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm pretty competitive as far as sports goes, but I just, I don't know. It just wasn't a thing.
0: So. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Like, uh, yeah, I'm like that with jujitsu. I've got no real interest in competing, but I love the process of training. I absolutely love yeah. going in, learning, sparring you know working on things but i got no interest in competing for some reason it yeah. just does nothing for me so it's 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 really odd but yeah i i w- yeah. I, I don't that, mind running running a 100k race but I, I don't have no interest in doing that it's weird isn't it
1: but you know what that's exactly the experience i had me and the closest thing i could say is just let it did it for the love of the sport you know mm. like i loved showing up early i trained with a group of jamaicans so i was always 20 minutes earlier <laughs> than everybody else i'd show up on time because i'm japanese right like well I'm, i look japanese i'd show up on time nobody is ever on time yeah, yeah. i would do my warm-up and hang out and then we train from 7 to 10 30 every night kind of thing you know
0: it's and it's interesting it was- from a cultural perspective because when we had the japanese judo team at the australian institute of sport and in the afternoon for example if practice was at four o'clock those guys would be walking into the, into the hall or the, you know, the met up dojo, they'd be walking in at 345, making sure that they had done some loosening drills. They're all wrapped up, they were ready to go. They were kind of poised on the side of the mat with five minutes to go. The Australian guys would be trickling in at four. So they were like four is four. But it's interesting because um, I trained with a guy uh, for two years in business and he was a lean production systems guy. So lean production is the Toyota production system that came out of Japan. So Japanese manufacturing that kind of originated in Japan after World War II. But it's a combination okay. of Western principles, TQM, (Total quality management, linked in then with, um, I suppose, the Eastern way of doing things or the Japanese way. So they kind of had this super system, which is what drives the Toyota production system today. And there's a great book called The Toyota Way, if anybody wants to read it. Uh, it's about oh, lean production, sure. L-E-A-N. Um and there's websites on it if you look up lean manufacturing or lean production. And it's really about um so people may have heard about Six Sigma. Six Sigma is more like a kind of a a methodology where lean is more like a philosophy. So it's got lots of um terminology and like Kaizen, small incremental improvements, nemawashi right, right. decision by consensus, ocean canry, which is like top-down planning. So all of these things. But anyway, one of the things that um we sort of And after coming out of the military, this was more reinforced, was to be on time is to be five minutes early. And we heard that in the military as well. And I was like, oh, this is great because it's the same thing. If you're coming to a meeting, be prepared. So send your agenda in advance. And The principle of washi: know what people are going to discuss in the meeting. So a bit like what what you were doing there was showing up on time, be prepared, know what you're going to do. And I think that kind of state of mind or presence is really important before we encounter or take on practice period or something and to me that's like a version yeah. of mindfulness really
1: yeah 100 percent. i mean i remember now you're making me remember things I, I remember i was so into sprinting and the mechanics the training and everything like i just and i never really talked like i would just listen to mike talk and listen to you know the guys tell jokes and fool around and but i remember doing workouts and then You know, we finish at 10 and go to bed at 11. I would wake up sometimes because I wanted to try something and be on the track at 4.30 in the morning, like doing stuff. And I'm a golfer, right? And Mike is like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. But we just, I would just do stuff like that because I was so into it. And, you know, that's that, you know, you just, and now that we're like, I'm doing the startup now, we can talk about that later. But the one thing that you can't buy from anybody is enthusiasm. You know, like you oh. just can't, you can't pay anybody to have it. They either got it or they don't. And it's burning, a, burning them up or they yeah, don't. Yeah. And it's, you can't build it. You can't build that fire. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: yeah. No, I, I totally, I totally agree with you. So Ken, before you were doing sprinting, you were, uh, were you a professional golfer, semi-pro? How, how did that work?
1: You know, I turned pro when I was 24, which is late because like I was one of those, we like, golf wasn't really well developed as far as, you know, training and things like that when I grew up and and I, we weren't, you know, I wasn't a country club kid so much. We belonged to something, but I worked like every summer in high school. So, you know, and I, but I wanted to shot. So I think I, I turned pro the summer. I was t- 24. We'd been painting houses for a couple of years. And I, and I just like, I said, ah, screw this. Cause we only played like one or two four round t- t- tournaments ever, like in a year. So I went to school, Q school. I got through it was 1990. Got my, Q, my, my, tour card on the Canadian tour what was then the Canadian tour now it's the Mackenzie tour and I think I played four separate seasons I played a little bit in Asia you know knocked around a little bit and hung out in the Philippines I think in Singapore for like four months one year you know it's all a bit of a blur to be honest now (laughs) like it was first off it was like you know Christ like 25 years ago over 25 years ago now so it was a long time ago and and I was I just didn't have any kind of game back then. Like, you know, I think, I think I finished 10th in the Singapore Rolex Masters when I was there and kind of dogged it for the rest of the time and, you know, spent some time and hung out. But I, I just really didn't have as much of a clue as I do now. I didn't know how to, I didn't know anything about training. And that was, that all changed after I worked with Mike. And then as I got into like learning from my other buddies, like Val Nesedkin from Omega Wave, you're familiar with Omega Wave.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So So Val and I have been really good buddies for about 20 years. And I, like, I've learned a ton from him and applied his training principles. And, like, it's just, you know, I've been kind of there while he's been getting his education, using that system for feedback. And now he's doing all kinds of stuff, like, very interesting stuff, like, you know, uh, Bayesian uh, probability, oh, yeah, Bayesian probability yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's really, like, you know, what I've switched to is, like, as a coach now, like, I'm, like, i'm basically on his page because he's done so much education for me you know we we our job is to make good decisions and get like and now with the data and with the ability to analyze we can just make so much you know better decisions with with the with the technology that's available today you know like it's just it's it's completely different than even 10 years ago
0: oh yeah it's well i just had this conversation this morning with someone else and uh yeah, so much data and so much rich data out there that you can use, you know. Now it's it's really different. Yeah. So Kendall, yeah, you you yeah, were exactly. you were pl- you were playing golf and then you decided to start coaching. What why did you decide to to start coaching golfers? What was the um what was well, the Well, I mean card obviously
1: you? you know, if I'd have been making a million dollars a year, I probably probably would have still played golf. But like, you know, it's hard to make money. I didn't like I said, I didn't really know what I was doing, but mostly it was injury. You know, I uh I, I, in 1991, I think I went to Japan cause I had carpal tunnel, basically. I was told I had both wrists and I stayed there for two years. And at this point I didn't know anything about, you know, rehab or anything like that. So I just went over and dealt with the injury and tried to heal and kind of wasted the prime sort of golf years, like trying to figure it out in Japan. So that was like, um, that's a whole nother story. Um, but I, you know, once I figured out that um, when I started running track, that's when I started to sort of get more into coaching because because I was seeing this world class coach every day, and coaching became something to me that was like eventually got more attractive than playing. And then after you know even after I coached like a bunch of world class players like I like you know I started with Ryan Moore and I th- I taught Paul Casey and Peter Costas, and then I was I was with Stephen Ames for like a bunch of time and then I the last guy of, you know like you know probably the biggest name was VJ Singh. I I worked with all those guys, like took them out of sort of career kind of, you know, slumps sort of thing and, and, and got them, got them back to playing. And I just was really, you know, I was was into being a coach, you know, probably more than I was into being a player because I was putting more effort into understanding coaching than I was playing. But then, um, you know, Vijay kind of, he said, Hey bro, you should, you should play. So I, on his, his recommendation, I tried to qualify for the senior U S open in 2018 and I made it like I was shocked. And I, so I, I played my first major that year, you know, I was actually teeing it up in a tournament with VJ. you know, after coaching them, like, you know, a couple of months earlier. So it was cool. You know, it was really cool, but it's not my focus
0: sort of thing. So what do you think are, or what have you found to be the good quality, the qualities of a good coach? What's your sort of guiding philosophy or principles that you apply to your uh, coaching today?
1: Well, I mean, you gotta find something you love or else you can't really be a good coach. I think coaching in any, any sport, you have to be willing to put more into it than the athlete. Like if you can't put more into it than the actual athlete, I think you're in trouble. And, and it's not necessarily like straight out effort because obviously you're coaching really fit young folks sometimes, but you have to put a lot of thought into it. So you gotta love it. You, you can't be afraid of work like whatsoever. And, you know, the other thing is you can't really be thinking about money all the time. Like if you're going to do a really good job, you know, like, and you don't, (laughs) you don't coach to get rich. Um, You know, all the, all the experience I had, we're putting into this new sort of uh, startup kind of venture and, and that's been really helpful, but I, but you know, part of what it is, is we're focused on coaches. Like we're taking coaches that have got, you know, proven methodologies or long, long track records of success and then trying to take that expert system they have in their head and scale it for them. Because the problem that we have is really good coaches is it takes you a long time to get it. You can't charge very much for it. You can only, you know, teach so many people. So my, you know, my sort of idea was like, let's see if we can scale this. Like the technology seems to be there, you know, Um, but but, you know, technical knowledge is sort of a, a given, but some, you know, well, every sport it's fashionable to, you know, slag people that are at the top because they, you know they don't know anything or they didn't get there and deserve it but I find you know most people that you meet that are top end they've got something good to say you know um, you might not agree with everything but like I said you, you've gotta you gotta love it and you gotta be really into it so the odds of you like being like completely inept if you're at the top of the, of the, the game is like very slim I think.
0: Yeah, it makes some interesting points there because people think that, you know, oh, you're a coach of a professional team or you're a physiotherapist with a professional team or you do research for a professional team like I do or if I do consulting on a professional team, people think like you're getting like a million dollars a month. You're getting paid like an athlete. And it's like, it's it's far from that. Like I I, I would, there's people driving trucks to get paid more than some of the physiotherapists that work with, you oh, know. yeah, on an, with,
1: on an hourly for sure. Oh, you know, yeah. On an hourly, like you're making like, way less than minimum wage. And that's why a lot of guys will do it as their side hustle, you know, but it, it takes so much time. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like if you're a coach, typically you got to work, right. Cause you can't make enough money coaching. And then like, cause Mike would do a full day as a massage therapist. He come out in October or November and he was weird because like when it was cold, his eyes would water. So he would be out there. I know he'd worked like the whole day. And then he's out here from like you know, seven 30 till 10 30 at night. And I'm like, when do you sleep? And I found out he didn't sleep that much, but it was like rinse and repeat every day. I was like, man, where do you find the energy? You know, it was, that's that's like stuff they don't teach you, you know, and he was just, he just sort of was emblematic of everything that I thought a good coach was, you know?
0: Yeah, and there's lots of sacrifices there. Like uh, I often often come across younger people like, oh, I want to do like sports science. I want to be a strength conditioning coach or director of athletic performance. And I go, yep that's great now when you're 19, 20, 21,
1: 22, what's oh, it going to be like
0: when you're 35 and you want to have a family and kids and you know, you're know you away most evenings or you're away traveling you know, or uh, the money isn't that great really? Um, and then what happens if you get sacked? Because a lot of these professional yeah. sports teams can just bin you in one day and you're gone. You constantly move around. In some ways, it's nearly like a military lifestyle. And you can see yeah. their eyes, yeah. eyes rolling in their head going, oh, i never thought about all that. But they just think like, I'm going to be sitting on the sideline for you know Real Madrid you know coming out with a yep. sponge sponge and telling people what to do and I'm I'm going to be a multimillionaire and like yeah oh, right, those guys don't get that <laughs> well
1: you know god bless the guys that hold on to that and eventually get that job but there's so few of them right and you know it's almost like our job is like guys with experience is like you could be that guy that that one in 10,000 guy that gets the Chelsea gig or whatever it is you know but you are you prepared for, for for not doing that and and that's um you know that's that's a reality of it like i i work with multiple tour players and it's it's not glamorous it doesn't pay that well um you get to meet some pretty interesting people and the guys are all interesting you know um and the, obviously the golf courses are fantastic the venues are really cool but you're you are kind of traveling and living someone's life if you're doing the tour thing you yeah. know so that's you know that that's uh some guys like it some guys don't like I'm, yeah. I'm not really in need of the validation at this point in my
0: career so sort of, but... <laughs> for, no, for those people who can't see kendall kendall is like uh, uh how old are you kendall do you mind Do you mind 50, sound? F- 54 54 he looks about 26 though. <laughs> there was a picture taken there was yeah, a bit, there was a great picture taken of myself kendall and a few other people in, a, in that katsu restaurant and i love showing people that picture i go how old do you reckon this guy is? How old do you reckon that guy is? How old do you reckon she is? And everybody yep. thinks like, when I when point to Ken, people go, no, 32, 33. I'm like, that dude's in his 50s. Like, what? And everybody's like, you look like you're in your 50s, Ian. And this, everybody else looks younger <laughs> than you. And I was the youngest person at the table at like 42, I think. So oh, it's, man, it's, yeah. it's actually hilarious. <laughs>
1: You got the raw deal that all the Asians with the, the young genes, the young gene, yeah.
0: yeah. Oh man, Kendall, yeah, Kendall still looks like done. he should be at university. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's great. Kendall, Kendall, Kendall will die, and people be like, He went so young, he's 36. No, he's like 92. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what? well, I, I
1: hope I can. I just, I'm just trying to hang on, Ian, just doing my best to hang on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> No, you're doing oh. good, man. So, Kendall, you've had all these experience playing golf, coaching people at a very high level. And you had this great experience with Mister Murray in the sprinting. You've taken all mm-hmm. of these things together, and now you're on this new path, like you said, with this new startup. What are you able to talk about what you're doing with that startup and what your goal is?
1: I can talk a little bit about it right now. Um, well, the goal is we want to become like a enterprise software solution for like human improvement now that's a really big category yeah. right but um we think with the technologies we're bringing together and the team we've got together that you know say whatever is out there that exists right now say like whoop or fitbit um you know pick your sort of device that measures what's going on like um people are you know and, and just in studying whoop a little people are enthralled and just like love the promise of whoop right like I can tell when I'm tired. I can tell when I'm rested. And that's very useful information. Like, obviously, we've talked about sleep a lot. Like, and that's a really interesting thing. Like, when you add, um, you know, like when you have the ability to monitor even more things, um, I think it becomes useful. And, and just like with, with athletes, um, you know, Val and I have talked a lot about, you know, I really think that DC potential is like the new HRV. In my mind, that's where it is. And like, and you know, direct the direct current and direct brain current. Just measuring. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I I think they what they measure basically, you know, the level of ec- electricity in your brain. So, like, you're looking at millivolts. And on the Omega Wave system, you know, you're you're in the normal range when you're between 20 and 40 millivolts of activity, and and that's typically the, where they want athletes. Now, some athletes are going to be out, operating outside that range, but you know, when you do when you do tasks you can see that drop off. Like say you do like a complex coordination exercise and you've got various different rhythms, you know, like because people have trouble with that. If you measure DC potential before and after that workout, you can see like invalid words, like it'll drop off like a sack of potatoes. Like if it's if it's got a lot of a lot of sort of neural demand, right? And that's what we always talked about in sprinting, like a huge amount of neural demand when you're doing like recruitment exercises or you know all kinds of different hurdle work and whatever else and and now like it's not hrv isn't as good an indicator of like your ability to coordinate a movement as uh, you know because this is running the show that the the brain's running yeah, the yeah. show so like i really think that that's going to be one of the next things that people start to pay attention to um you know obviously like you know i'm, I'm in the u.s the heart disease and cardiac um sort of deaths are probably the biggest source of of uh of, Death here but I mean you know you start to take a look at that kind of information you contextualize it for people you know but I I think from a performance standpoint my big focus like since I sprinted has been coordination and because that's my area of interest like that's where I sort of gravitated to like man like because they are like Omega Wave is one one of the only companies that is measuring it you know and and they've got you know you go to their site they've got tons of education on there they've got doctors talking about it 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 is a thing, and it's been a thing, you know, that we've known about. Or I've used a system for probably 15 years, I guess, you know. And it, it's just a, I think it's the new thing that's coming. To be honest with you, you know. So
0: so how uh, how can you measure the DC,
1: DC potential? Well, like uh, like on the Omega, like go on the Omega website. It's really interesting. They just put a there's a you've got one electrode here, you've got one electrode here, and it really is so one just on like one on your measuring.
0: wrist and one on your wrist and yeah. one on your forehead for people listening. Yes.
1: And then you've got the ECG like on your chest. Yeah. So you hook up and, and it's two and a half minutes and you get, you know, all of this information that's really, you know, most of this stuff was done for the Russian space program. So it's not new, right? Um, but it is something that you don't get a lot of exposure in say the US, I'm not sure about Australia. But um, you know, when we talked about DC potential 10 years ago, people was like that we've never heard of it. And the problem was it was all Russian literature and studies that were they were were not translated into English so literally North Americans had never heard of it until it got translated so um I that's what I found the most fascinating and when Val told me like listen we're measuring all these people and like I've seen um you know and talked to him about this like at length and he's just like for him it's all it's the more, more important when you're talking about performance it's the most you know, um, intriguing parameter, physiological parameter that you can look at. And although HRV is important, like to understand like the, uh, the regulation of your cardiac system and, and the fundamentally that's sort of the, the biggest thing there, I think from an athletic standpoint, and again, I'm not a doctor, but when I'm interested in like my, my ability, my athlete's ability to execute a skill or to swing with a high velocity or to, yeah. um, you know, to, to acquire a new skill, DC potential is like you know kind of far and away. Besides maybe their metabolic parameters because they have to have the work capacity to be able to do it. DC potential is like the thing that is like, I just I'm like now I'm just thinking about it all the time. And you know as much information as I can get from Val about you know how, and you know he's he's seen so much, much and he understands like how to manipulate variables because he's got so many data points to sort of go through right. That it's um it's the most compelling thing um to me and I and I just because I you know my book was all about coordination that's kind of been the thing that I have taught like all the guys that I've worked with the tour players I always just improve their movement like that was my default strategy because you're not yeah. what are you going to tell Vijay Singh about a swing nothing nothing right you're not going to change Ryan Moore's grip you're not going to change like you know David Duvall's action you're just all your default. Um, your, your default is to actually improve their movement. And then, you know, now talking about like this, these systems to measure physiology, you are working on their readiness. So your preparedness would be equal to your skill development. So that would be preparedness as a category. And then your ability to perform would be your readiness. So your physiological do you have enough, you know, juice in this battery to run the meat suit, like for as long as possible in an accurate manner. Right so
0: so kendall with the dc potential you said it goes between 20 millivolts and 30 40 was it that's the range Yeah,
1: 20 and 40 i think that's the range on the system so what's um, it, what, but, what does
0: it what's the mean if it goes above it or below it what's that what's that indicative of because i'm not familiar with well, this
1: y- so you could be overstimulated which means you know and a lot of this it would be emotional or mental yeah so you would have too much stimulation so you'd be kind of like you know um too frenetic sort of bouncing off the wall so you'd be hyper sort of activated and on the other side hypo would be like it'd be tough so it's like say you were your dc potential was too low you wouldn't be able to fire right and if you're if it was too high then you would you wouldn't be able to control the firing so imagine you with a a ton of adrenaline you know you're going sort of sympathetic overdrive you've got a ton of stuff going on in your brain how hard is it to coordinate a move like if you talk to any golfer they stand on the tee and they're jacked about playing the first tournament like coordination is the first thing that goes out the window and that's what every they try to teach everybody how to breathe and do this kind of stuff yeah yeah. you know and and like but what you could do if you were smart is it you knew protocols that actually suppressed the nervous system you could deploy those as an intervention mitigating strategy right and then try to work through it that way so that becomes part of an athlete's preparatory phase so Um, so you know
0: so so over time then, Kendall, we'll take like something like, um, we'll take we'll take the example of what we're talking about here on Jiu-Jitsu. Like Jiu-Jitsu, very kind of, right. you know, you could be very high, very quick, especially if you're new. But over time, you're going to acquire that skill. You should be back down over time in that 20 to 40. And it's that kind of virtuous cycle then where, you know, if you're with a more skilled opponent, that might go over. If you're with a less yep. skilled opponent, you might be very relaxed. So it might be yep. kind of fluctuating this way. So you can actually check or see real time, the response to that stimulus is that correct yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah absolutely like and so many things drive this response right because your your emotional um state has a huge amount to do mm-hmm. with like how activated you get um you know it's just the more you use it the more you you start to realize like man there's a lot of stuff going on here you know that i haven't thought of because like Right now, because because we can measure it, like whoop and those kind of things, um, you know, everybody's looking at HRV and it's become the thing that people talk about and, and it isn't a very important measure, but because like coordination is sort of my focus, uh, like, this is the thing really kind of got my interest. And in. I'm like, wow, you know, that's amazing because like, you know, talking to you know, the guys at Fatigue Science and Pat Burns, a really good friend, you know, like I've known him for a long time. We, we talked about um, just sleep and how much sleep you need. And, and if you, so you, if you did sleep and then you measured DC potential as well, because not everybody's going to recover, yeah. you know, because it could be, you say you do a really hard workout and obviously, you know, you've got like requir- nutritional requirements for your brain to recover. You don't get those nutritional requirements, do something silly, like go for a few beers, you sleep might not be enough to recover it. It might not be enough in two days right but i'm you know so your default assumption that you wake up in the morning and you've got a full tank is you know all of a sudden it doesn't look as good (laughs) like you might be a little bit off
0: what about the what about the 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 counter to that like if you want to if you want people to be potentially when you're talking about broader human performance if you want people to be more relaxed in a recovery state and you want people maybe to be doing meditation as an example then do you want that that DC to be less than 20? Is that what you want them to be? Or does, should it still be hovering between 20 and 40?
1: Um, you, I, you want to have people in a workable range most of the time, and but obviously it's going to, you know, it's, I think the battery analogy isn't too bad um, yeah. because, you know, like the more, the more, um, see, explosive movement you want to do, there's going to be a cost. And that, is, uh, you know, one of the big things that Val talks about. You can do a lot of things but what's the physiological cost for doing it. But if you're, you're looking at, um, you know, you're always trying to have some form of homeostasis as an athlete. Um, and you can actually train the capacity, like for you, you're going to train aerobic capacity. You're going to train, you know, um, probably not so much anaerobic, right. Because of your sport, but you, but you're, when you do the ultra stuff, you've got to train yourself to deal with all kinds of things like you've got to get enough nutrition for your brain to run or else you're yeah. in trouble, but, but you're never going to be super clear when you're doing that, especially if you're running hundred. So you have to get used to being kind of out of it and being able to manage that state, right? Because you're not ticking over. Like it's not easy that grind, you know, and it's I, never having done it before. Like, can you stay sharp? Through the whole race like that or are you like definitely, going in and def, out
0: and no de- def, it, so. definitely not there's there's definitely for me and um, personally from doing long distance running and long distance swimming long distance running obviously you're more time awake so up to like 28 30 hours and um, the longest yep. swim i've done just before christmas was 20ks which was about seven hours so it's not as bad but you do start very early in the morning so you're up quite early so total hours cumulatively wake is quite high so you have a number of different things happening total hours of wakefulness which obviously then the longer you're awake, the less sleep you have, which that, that in itself is bad, even if you're, even if you're just sitting yeah. in a chair, then you have a circadian rhythm effect over that 24 hour days, which keeps changing. So you might feel you know kind of on top of the world at seven o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock in the evening, even though you've been awake for 24 hours, but then you know once it gets to two o'clock in the morning, you feel like a bag of shit, really. And um, so, but then that's all, that, that's all dependent on the sleep you've had in the days and weeks leading into that as well. And you're, but then, the big thing you have on the top on top of that then Kendall is the actual the the, the volume or the load that you're doing. So you've yeah. got all of these things happening. The three main things will be probably, and what you're saying there is right. We are looking for that homeostasis, that balance, right? So you've got that sleep circadian rhythm, the training load all come into a factor. of it. But what I have found is that actually <clears throat> in preparation for that is training at those odd times and kind of mentally rehearsing the fact that you're going through them um, is very helpful. Um, you know, such as, going for a run between three and seven in the morning not that you have to do that every single day but you should do that as part of your preparation no. or running from maybe 6 p.m till 12 12 like midnight so you're actually seeing the sun go down you're getting used to that transition from day to night so you're kind of replicating components of that so you're kind of breaking it down into those epochs or time cycles but to your point right. no you're definitely not sharp Um, uh, to give you an example i remember on one run i actually got to the next checkpoint. And I was like, man, I didn't know there was wild horses around here. There's loads of Brumbies, which is like a horse. And uh no, there's no horses around here. hallucinating? Hallucinating, exactly. And I was like, oh no, wow. there was loads of horses running through like on both sides of me through the, through the trees. Uh, oh, and there geez. one was at like about three or four o'clock in the morning. I was running this kind of like wolf type dog was running beside me. Um, and I was like calling him along and he was running beside me. And um, there was no dog like so you, no you, yeah but it's that ability to kind of keep going through it and you know that's that's in that type of event but if if, if it's a military environment if it's a safety critical job obviously the consequences are different and it's not like you do it every single day or every week you do it like once maybe twice a year um but no, yeah, you know you stretch
1: yourself to yeah. do that for sure so
0: yeah but you you, wow. you you don't have um you're not in a good space cognitively and i remember finishing a race and I remember giving my email address to somebody and my phone number and I was completely wrong. Now that's something you would think you would actually know your own phone number, which yeah, I had yeah, for like yeah. 15 years or more. Yeah. More than 15 yep. years and my email address. And I got them both of them wrong. So that yeah, just shows you like, you, you know, regardless.
1: Could... Well, I, I remember that funny story, like a one chiropractor, you know, is a very, very savvy guy. We call him the shoulder guy. And, um, he told me he was preparing for a marathon And this was like, okay, well, how are you doing? He said, well, you know, I don't have too much time. So I'm running hills between clients. So he's taking clients and he's doing pure anaerobic exercise, anaerobic, right? Training for a marathon, which is really, you should be training like 120 beats per minute and trying to just, you know, and like, it's all ventricle hypertrophy, blah, 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 trying to get more volume. And he was just basically, you could, you could imagine his heart wall getting thicker. He's just running these repeats up the hill. He ran the marathon and literally didn't know his name at the end of it. Like his daughter came in, he's like, or a daughter or son came in and he just like, was so out of it. It was just ridiculous. And I said, like, I mean, you've got to understand energy systems better than the next lay person, right? You trained in like a completely opposite way to to prepare (laughs) for this marathon and you, and you just gutted it out. And because he's so mentally tough, he just, he almost killed himself. You know, and it's just like, it's funny now like it's hilarious now but when it happened it was just like whoa what did he do to himself
0: yeah he, so, he 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 if you want to do something opposite he should have just like you know basically went and did bodybuilding and swimming to do come something come, yeah, he should have said something like we yeah. <laughs> really the most yeah. opposite thing you could do you know yeah any
1: anything other than hill runs like you know sprints for a marathon probably would have looked a little bit smarter
0: yeah so. But obviously all those things have a place and you want to have a mixture in your training. But yeah, it's, uh,
1: yeah, it's interesting yeah. that
0: that's where the mind can well, kind of overcome.
1: And, and this is where like the measurement, you know, like if you're actually aware of what your metabolic sort of profile looks like and you, you know, and you know what a successful marathoner looks like, you'd probably be able to work towards that, you know? So like on a, a trending towards like, a, you know, an adaptive sort of pro profile for that sort of athlete, for an endurance athlete would be smart. So, um, we did have a mega wave at that time. And I believe I actually, like I did measure him and he was, it was horrible. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of confirming it it was, uh, it was just a thing. And the funny thing is, I think I did that when he was actually an expert giving a seminar. And oh, really? Like, Bro, I just got smoked. It's a Samaritan. I can't figure it out. And I'm like, you idiot. Like, <laughs> yeah. so I was able to quantify, it was quantified stupidity
0: so funny some people do uh some people do some silly things in these training things
1: oh i've done the i've done everything dumb you can imagine in (laughs) training so like
0: it's just like not a thing oh yeah i I the first ultramarathon i i ran i think i had 16 cheese bread cheese rolls and took about 20 voltaran tablets which is like an anti-inflammatory probably the worst thing i could do and so yeah i was uh puking and shitting for two days afterwards and, and wasn't wasn't good so i had so much bread in me I was like oh, a bakery my, it was just oh it was the God. worst it was the worst combination of of all things i had all the wrong clothes everything but you learn from those mistakes and that's the benefit of, oh, yeah. of doing those things yeah. and you, if you, you learn you know
1: yeah if you haven't fucked up epically like really really epically you you just haven't been in the game long enough
0: like <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: you're you're, you'll do it to yourself 100 percent.
0: yeah i've I've uh, i've done it a few times yeah but that's that that's the fun is because you know you get into that kind of that like i said a virtuous cycle that kind of plan do check act you go right i learned that and then i can move on i ain't making that mistake again 100 so,
1: percent. yeah I, when we did these crazy track workouts my friends would say why would you do that and i'm like i have to do it to myself none of my friends will let me do it to them <laughs> <laughs> you know like yeah. oh yeah. craziness yeah, yeah it was so much fun
0: so so kendall you took um all of these experiences as a professional golfer uh working with these track guys um and you wrote a book um can you tell us a little bit about that book that you that you wrote and how people could uh, maybe even look it up
1: uh yeah it's called we call it i call it the athletic fundamentals of golf yeah and it was um it was actually a complete rewrite of a I, i wrote another book called this the uh the physical basis swing faults, and I I didn't that book was okay. We were just determining what was happening, you know, with golfers physically, and but I wrote one chapter on the med ball, and that when I read the book again, I was like, we'll scrap this. So then I I wrote this book. I wrote down basically every lesson that I'd ever taught, right, and then you know that the med ball chapter stood out. So I took the med ball work because we did a lot of med ball training with the track guys, and I and I wrote this book. It took me probably two years to put it all together. And then I, I had to scrap it because I said, you know, this isn't precise enough. And like anything that you're really into, I, I was actually sort of buoyed by the, the recognition that it wasn't right. And then what I did was I identified eight principles of athletic movement. So, you know, midline, calm, everything was basically measurable. It was sort of like physics was my default. Yeah. And, and the, the book really describes, you know, like a series of provocative, like coordination tests. And if you read it a couple of times, you'll realize the book is actually the test and the fixes like in a progression. And um, it just identified, you know, these these physical, um, physical, I guess, principles of, of how I assess movement. And then I just designed a bunch of proprietary med ball drills for it. And, um, you know, that, that sort of like is the underpinning for the, the training philosophy we have and, and uh, actually, like, is, it forms a basis for the, um, the, the theoretical underpinning for, the, for the, uh, the movement analysis we're going to do on a, on a like, for, for people on their iPhones. So I've worked through that a couple times, you know, and it looks like we're, um, you know, making progress. And it's not the same as it was before. And it's not, like, central to what we're doing. I think the, uh, the, the, the training programs are sort of more central to what we're doing. But uh, having a bit of video that gives you feedback, like very obvious feedback on how you're moving, like not joint angles and things like that, but things I can, as a coach, I can tell you to move forward, back, up, down, forward, sideways. You know, that's all calm stuff. You know, how does your center of mass move in space?
0: So you said about med med ball drills and so on. So the cover of your book has the medicine ball and then another picture, which is of you, I think. Is that that you? Yeah,
1: that's me throwing a medicine ball against the wall. That's the... The, the power throw
0: the so. power throw and then you got one swinging a golf club so these type of yep. things you're going to build into this new platform going forward will this be just for golf or for any sort of just are you talking about optimal human movement overall
1: yeah it'll be optimal human movement like when we talked about that even the, a, a pt product will be more about like you know optimizing movement but like specifically in softball and baseball which we're looking at first and then golf, and then, you know, running, there's different things you're looking at, but when you can actually, in my experience, when you can actually tell people how to coordinate a movement, like based on like center mass and midline, like say when I teach golfers, we teach them med ball exercises, how to control the center mass and midline, how their legs have to move. They can, their arms sort of sort themselves out, which is really interesting to watch, you know, because like, because your foundation of movement is, your center mass control and once you learn how to use your legs properly you know that that helps a lot like i i wrote this um with the help of one of my buddies who who is um this a distributor for the bts sport lab in uh in, in the in canada we wrote this software program which quantified all the principles in my book so you know midline center of mass or center of mass physical advantage gatherings and triple force all that stuff and um we were able to get some really great information. And like, one of the things, if you've got any golfers listening, like on your downswing when your hips get about the hip height, that's that the point of maximum ground force. And like right, right after that, you get the, the moment of maximum arm acceleration. Um, the interesting thing that happens is your center mass moves back and it moves forward, like in right at the point of maximum uh, ground force, it it's doesn't move, it stays like very still and, and it's from when your arms are like hip height to hip height. So like all this part through the bottom, your center of mass is basically stable. It's completely rotational. And you know, the, the body moves a little bit and the, the spine moves back, but the, the net effect is that the center of mass stays almost dead still, like it's millimeters different. And, and that is fun, counter to what most golfers learn. They, they learn, I'm supposed to shift my weight, but we have, you know, so much data on really good players the center of mass doesn't move the center of mass actually stays very still when you're rotating and that's when I worked with Paul Casey and he got that to happen he I I, unbeknownst to me because I don't really watch this stuff too much he actually is the leader in greens and regulation from 2016 I think through through 2020 and you know the year before I worked with him he won 878,000 I think then he won 3.6, then 3.8, then 3, 8, then 3 point whatever, then, you know, like he just yeah, went yeah. in a tear. And it was just given a player that's that good, a really solid game plan for how to move and like what the essence of his ball striking actually was. And of course, you know, like you do that job and it's it's not super lucrative or anything. So then you think, man, I should get this in the system so I can yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. you know,
0: help Scana, more yeah. people
1: do it. Scale it, yeah, yeah.
0: So the book, the book also comes. If anybody's looking up the Athletic Fundamentals of Golf, comes with twenty-eight detailed exercise demonstration and athletic swing instructional videos. So if you're out there and you want to beat your mates on the golf course this weekend, even a friendly game, this might be your competitive edge to jump on this and get this book. It's quite, it's quite (laughs) cheap. So I'm just looking at the Kindle price here, even it's only twenty dollars. So you might actually be able to win a few hundred dollars betting with your mates on the weekend if you improve your swing. So, so yeah. Now that's
1: it's, I think the best place to buy that is on the website and I'm mean, not even, to be honest with you, I haven't been keeping up to date if that thing is actually functioning so. Um, if anybody can't get it like I can send out PDFs and we can just Venmo or it doesn't really matter some sort of uh, thing. But uh, yeah, if anybody's interested, uh, I'll, like, uh, I'll, I'll take all contacts. Um, you know, I'm happy to talk about the book. It was, it's basically my business card is how it works.
0: So. so Kendall, is the best place for people to find out more about you is at on Coach Kendall website, com?
1: Yeah, com or or my email is on there. I think it's coachkendall at me.com. That's yeah. it. I, like, I think I'm on Twitter at Coach Kendall and uh, I'm I'm on Instagram too. I think it's just the same thing. I think it's at coach coachkendall or something or coachkendall or something.
0: We'll put this uh, link into the show notes and um you know the uh the book, the coaching, everything here that can go in. Uh, there's a few videos here on your website as well so um yeah head over there guys and, and have a look at uh, kendall's uh, kendall's website kendall thank you very much for coming on the podcast there uh, really appreciate coming on man Um R- yeah, I, we, know, we, man, I
1: knew you must have been hard up for guests there even if you're calling me so that's right we're scra- best,
0: we were then. we were scraping the bottom of the barrel this time so thank, th- <laughs> th- thanks for coming up from the dregs of the bottom yeah really appreciate it <laughs> there you go yeah i'm just grinding it out man that's
1: all it's just day by day
0: Thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks,
1: Ian.